if you keep your Bibles open to Joshua 3 and, and 4 and those passages that Pastor Josh read, that would be helpful. The title of this sermon is 12 Stones. So let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, uh, we come as needy people, but as grateful people, even as we cast our mind upon your word, even as we seek to meditate upon your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would attend your word and impress it upon our minds, that we would learn to fear your name with a loving reverence, and that all the peoples of the earth would know your mighty saving hand through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would do this for his name's sake. Amen. Well, friends, we are experts at forgetting, aren't we? Experts at forgetting. We're good forgetters. If I were to ask you what the title of the sermon last week was, maybe half of us would remember. If I ask you what the four points of the sermon were, I guess it would be significantly less. I'm not the best at remembering names. That's a pretty bad fault for a pastor. My wife helps me in that capacity to remember people's names. What about when you go upstairs and you forget what you went up there for? Has that ever happened to you? My grandmother used to say, I've got a memory like a sieve. And of course, we'd all laugh at the thought of all these things, all these thoughts falling through her mind and out of her mind. We'd laugh. That is until the day she forgot that my granddad had died four years earlier and the Alzheimer's took hold of her all the way to her own death a few years later. See, we're experts at forgetting from those light-hearted moments and incidents to the extremes of the effects of fallenness on the human mind. In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman says that our world suffers from cultural amnesia. Cultural amnesia. He notes that forgetfulness is a death work and is one of the hallmarks of modern education. Education that is anti-historical. And so it's not that the society becomes simply anti-historical. Society wants to erase history if history doesn't accord with modern ideas of what is moral. And so we've seen in recent times on college campuses and beyond, haven't we, the tearing down of statues and memorials. And therefore history, the past, is seen as something to be overcome instead of something to be remembered and learned from. The sociologist Philip Reif said that forgetfulness in a culture leads to barbarism, barbarism of a culture, barbarism which vandalizes the physical artifacts of the past, but also the ideas and customs and practices of the past. And so what you get is you get a culture and a society that loses its moorings and loses a sense of national and individual identity. So that forgetfulness is a cause of cultural decline. Forgetfulness is also a cause of relational decline. 
decline in a marriage, when the spouses forget why they married one another. They forget to show love and gratitude and forgiveness. They forget to make an effort. And forgetfulness is also the cause of relational decline with our God. We forget who He is, and we forget all that He has done for us. And so in His wisdom, God places markers in the lives of His people so they won't forget. They won't forget His mighty acts in salvation. And this is what we have with the 12 stones here in Joshua chapter 4. They are a memorialization of God's saving deeds. A memorialization of God's saving deeds. You remember if you were here last week that Moses is dead and Joshua is now in command and poised to take the people of Israel over the river Jordan and into the promised land of Canaan, thus fulfilling God's promise to Abraham and Moses of blessings of land, a name, and a nation. So here is a moment of transition. The blessings of, of Canaan lie across the Jordan in this land flowing with milk and honey, in this land of great plenty. But there's a decision point. They must choose to go over to enjoy the blessings of the land. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the date of this transition, the date of this crossing is given in verse 19 of chapter 4. It's given there, the tenth day of the first month. That's the very same date, 40 years before, when they'd been called to choose the Passover lamb and to choose to follow Moses out of Egypt, after which they wandered in wilderness, in the wilderness of disobedience, if you like, and never tasted the fulfillment of the promise. Will they take up holy courage now based on the purposes, promises, presence and precepts of God? And will they now choose to go over the river and take possession of the land? And of course we read, as Pastor Josh read there in chapters 3 and 4, that they do that. And so God instructs Joshua at the beginning of chapter 4 to gather 12 stones and to gather 12 men representing the 12 tribes and Joshua says to the 12 men to set up the stones as a sign so that verse 6 of chapter 4 says, When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever a memorial forever. Joshua repeats it to the people en masse at the end of chapter 4 in verse 21 when he says, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. So the 12 stones here is a, is a call to remember, to remember God's mighty grace, and Joshua here is the instrument to lead them into that experience of God's grace. Joshua, who you remember, was called Hoshea, but renamed by Moses as Joshua. The Lord is salvation. And through Joshua, God is showing us here in the Old Testament a pattern of saving grace that is brought to fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, the better, 
the true Joshua, who Matthew tells us is God incarnate and who will save his people from their sins. And it is Jesus, isn't it, who sets up his own memorial forever in the Lord's Supper when he says of eating the bread and the wine, do this in remembrance of me. Remember how I gave my body and blood to save you from your sins on the cross. To remember. To remember means to reflect on something with a a love and reverence and devotion. So biblical remembrance of God's mighty saving acts in the past is meant to stir up faith and hope for the present and the future. So Peter says, doesn't he, in his letters, and he was pretty good at forgetting God's grace, wasn't he, Peter? He can say, it is right to remind you of these things. When you reflect on God's faithfulness in the past, it brings faith for today and bright hope for tomorrow. It's the words of the song, isn't it? What do these stones mean? Well, they don't mean whatever you want them to mean. When your children ask, you need to answer accurately according to God's word. The memorialization in these 12 stones is to remind the people of when God led the people across the Jordan, a unique and and yet different event like the Red Sea. And the people were to pass that on to the next generation. In other words, you're to tell your children about what God has done and the uniqueness of what God has done in saving his people. And you see, as we remember how God has acted mightily for his people, we trace the history from Joshua to Jesus, and we remember what he's done for us. And this then stirs up in us today love and faith and hope. And so for the rest of our time, I want us to see the 12 stones as a memorialization of God's saving deeds and examine them under three more headings, observation, consecration, and exaltation. So first then, the observation of God's saving presence. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. As soon as you see, see what? As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was, in the Old Testament, a physical symbol of the, of the presence and power and precepts of God, even the very throne of God. And the people were called to observe and focus on the presence of God. Now the ark was usually kept inside the tabernacle in the, in the Holy of Holies, a place where only the high priests could enter. And the ark was maybe about, I don't know, half the size of that, what we use as the communion table, maybe over there. And it had wooden poles in order that it could be carried as the 12 priests were commanded to to carry it here across the River Jordan. The covenant law of, of God, the Ten Commandments, was kept inside the box. And on top were two cherubim with wings 
touching one another. They face towards one another in the middle. So you have the box, you have the, these two cherubim, the wings touching, okay? And between them, on, to, on top of the, of the box, on the lid, as it were, was the mercy seat over the Ten Commandments. And from above the mercy seat, then God would make himself known to the people. Here at the banks of the Jordan, the people weren't allowed to get too close. They were warned, don't get too close to the ark. Keep it in view, observe it, but don't get too close because God is holy. But also they were asked to keep a, a distance so they could see it. They needed to see it. They were to observe it at all times. It was to be in their vision. When you see the ark move, then you move. And so the ark then is this Old Testament expression of the power and presence of God, particularly in his saving grace, is what we see here, and the people are to observe it. Notice this. Um, as the people, they camped there for three days, they they were then able to observe the difficulty of the task ahead. See, the Jordan was at high tide when God led them across. He didn't wait till it was an easy ride. And why is that? Why do you think they're brought there? Three days they're supposed to stay there, and they can actually see what's ahead. Because God often brings people, his people, to places in their lives where the task ahead is so impossible only God can get them through. Only God can liberate them. The people must have looked at that river and they must have thought, we're dead. We're dead if we go in. But as soon as those priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant touched the river, the waters stopped and the people passed through on dry ground. You see, friends, God brings us to the end of ourselves and to impossible situations and he might be doing that for someone or some of you in here right now because he wants us to stop looking to ourselves and our intellect and our power and he wants us to start looking to him the people were called to consider the river and the difficulty of the task but they were called to observe the ark they were called to keep their eyes on that symbol of God's presence and power even the symbol of God himself but what about us today? Well, Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12 says this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of his creation, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. See, the mercy seat is no longer an essential part of atonement. Instead, Jesus Christ himself has become the one who atones for sin. He is the high priest who makes the sacrifice, and he is the sacrifice who makes atonement for sins and brings in the new covenant. And so now we don't look to the ark, we look to Christ. We look to the risen Christ and what he did on the cross to save sinners as the one perfect sacrifice, absorbing punishment due to sinners in the place of sinners. So that then the author of Hebrews can say in Hebrews 12, as you run the Christian race, look to Christ, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Jesus is the ark. 
He has tabernacled amongst us as the very saving presence and power and Word of God full of grace and truth. So the symbol has been replaced by the reality. And therefore, just as the people of Israel needed to observe God's saving power and presence by keeping the ark in view, so Christians observe God's saving power and presence by keeping Christ and the cross in view. You've got to fix your eyes on Jesus, friends. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and things of the earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You'll gain perspective. You'll see clearly. You come to Jesus to be saved, but you keep looking at him and you keep looking at him and you keep following him into all the blessings of being a Christian. And too many of you don't see your lives through the lens of God's saving grace and what it means to follow Jesus. You're fo focused on fresh expressions of supernatural miracles, even being mystically zapped out of your circumstances or, or mystically changed. And you get focused on your problems and the difficulty of the task ahead of you and you take your eyes off of Jesus and his word. And soon you become like Israel in the wilderness. And you're not grateful. You grumble. You grumble about God's provision. It's not good enough. You forget God's grace. Even through people he's put in your life and you begin to take them for granted. You get a critical spirit even as you despise those around you. Even as you despise maybe people in the church and You've forgotten God. And when you grumble, relationships crumble. Instead, you've got to think theologically. Think theologically. Look at the stones. Look at the book. Look at the ark and how God led them across the Jordan. Look at the Christ and think, if God did not spare his own son for you, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? You see the logic? He's already done the hardest thing. He gave you the most valuable being in the universe who died for you at Calvary. Will he not give you everything you need in order to make you like his son and bring you home? Is he not able to do something great in your life right now? He may or he may not change your circumstances, but he will change you through your circumstances. And thanksgiving for his mercy will undercut in your heart bitterness and will make you a merciful and gracious person. That is the greater power and glory. He's raised Jesus from the dead. Will he not also raise you? And so for the Christian, even the circumstance of death is not our enemy. It's actually the way to final healing. When you die as a Christian, you fall asleep in Christ and you wake up in his arms forever. And on the last day, you even receive a resurrection body like his. What a hope for a Christian. What a hope for a Christian. Death isn't our enemy. No, Christ has conquered death. A former colleague of mine died this week, 58, pancreatic cancer. 
But the only thing that mattered was, did he fall asleep in Christ and wake up in his arms? Of that, I can't be sure. But if you can be sure of that, then you've got every reason to hope this morning. Brothers and sisters, remember what he's done. Keep your eyes on Jesus and follow him. And so the 12 stones serve as a memorialization of God's saving deeds through the observation of God's saving presence and then in light of the consecration of God's saved people. The consecration of God's saved people. That's the the next thing to look at. Then Joshua, this is verse 5 of chapter 3. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua is saying, in order for you to enter into the blessings, you need to commit yourself to God. To consecrate oneself would have involved, in those days, washing your clothes in a cleansing act and also abstaining from sexual relations in marriage, a relational act. It's unpacked, if you want to read it this afternoon, it's unpacked in Exodus 19. So in the washing of clothes, there's this idea of, 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 of cleansing, of turning from and separating from sin. And in the abstaining from sexual relations with one's wife, there is the idea of single-minded allegiance to God above your closest relationship. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say in Luke chapter 14? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my my disciple. And And the account in Matthew explains this as not loving father or mother more than we love Jesus Christ. That's what it means. Even close relationships are secondary. Doug Wilson, pastor and writer, is helpful here. He says, if we love Jesus Christ above all things, then we're in fellowship with the source of all the love in the universe. If we refuse to do so, then it doesn't matter what we make into our idol, we're not in fellowship with the source of all love. And if we're not in fellowship with that love, then even if you idolize your father, he will actually get less honor, respect, and love than if he were number two. You see that? You see the logic? Because you're not in fellowship with the source of all love. So you can't love others well. It's the same with your spouse or any relationship. But you've got, go, you got folks going around, and they're struggling in their relationships. They're trying hard, maybe even to make them work, but they're trying in the flesh. And the reason that these relationships aren't working is because you've not got your primary relationship in order. You haven't put Jesus as your first love. Jesus says, consecrate yourself. Reject past sins and present sins and anything you desire above me and yield to me as most precious. So that loving me and following me makes even your loving allegiance to your family look like hate. It's about a disposition of wholehearted commitment worked out in obedience. Now remember that this consecration doesn't qualify you for blessing, but it is a means for you to receive blessing that's based on God's grace to you. God's grace comes first. Your consecration 
comes second. His saving grace is the foundation for your consecration. And isn't that what the Apostle Paul tells us when he says in Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In light of the first 11 chapters of God's saving grace and saving mercies to you, consecrate yourselves now to God. Live in light of God's love for you and what he's done for you. Then you will have success as God defines it. Is all of your life consecrated to God, friends? He wants it. He wants it all. He wants it all, and that's the best thing for you. Every part. You can't be friends with the world and friends with God too. You must be in the world, but not of the world. All areas of your life must be holy to the Lord. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Your relationships, your speech, your social media accounts, your work. And, and, and consecration like that will lead you, may lead you to take all sorts of holy, courageous risks for God, even to other lands or unto the mission field. Oh, that God would, would raise up true missionaries amongst us. What a thing. We've seen this church grow in depth and breadth. We've seen the nations come here. We've seen conversions. What if he, he would do amongst us in this next 10 years? Raise up a generation of missionaries who go and die overseas for his glory. One of my heroes of the Christian faith is Eric Liddell. You, some of you have been here long enough to have heard me mention him before. Eric Liddell was a Scottish international rugby player and an Olympic runner who went on to become a Christian missionary in China uh, where he died as a prisoner of war in a prisoner of war camp during World War II. In the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris, he famously refused to compete in the 100-meter heats because they were held on Sunday and Liddell was a, a strict Sabbatarian. That is, he would not work or play sports on a Sunday because Sunday was set aside for God. He felt he must honor God before country. He stood firm on his principles in the face of national and international pressure on him to run. And then in a remarkable turn of events, instead of running in the 100 meters, he was able to run in the 400 meters final and he won to the glory of God. Eric Liddell was a man of great Christian conviction and integrity. And his story was brought back into the public limelight in the iconic 1981 movie, Chariots of Fire. And there's a moment in the movie that I think captures Liddell's understanding of how Christianity and sport or Christianity and all of life relate. It's when he comes to explaining to his sister, Jenny, how he must compete in the Olympics before he goes to China as a missionary. And he says this in, in the movie, I believe God made me for a purpose for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Little consecrated his whole life to God on the track field, on the mission field. And he felt God's pleasure through his obedience all the way to death in a prison camp. He enjoyed the blessing of life in the promised land of Christ, even through suffering. What a life well lived. 
What a life. Where Don't you want that? Stop living for low-grade things. That's the kind of life you want. Friends, repent of all known sin and put to death all the idols in your heart, the false gods of your heart, and decide today whom you will follow. Fathers here, make a choice right now. Talk about decision-making in Sunday school. Make a choice right now. Ecclesiastes says there's a time to make it for everything. There's a time to make a, a choice, a decision. Make a choice right now, fathers, about the direction you are taking your family. Is it down the broad way that leads to destruction, or is it the narrow way that leads to life? Is it back to Egypt and slavery, or is it across the Jordan into the promised land? And you couldn't put it better than Joshua himself in chapter 24 and verse 25. Choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Consecrate yourselves like that. And as it says in the text, tomorrow, God will do wonders amongst you. Look at the 12 stones, friends, and see a memorialization of God's saving deeds through the observation of God's saving presence in light of the consecration of God's saved people. And finally, with regards to the exaltation of God's servant, the exaltation of God's servant, that's the final thing to see. Chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then after Joshua led them across the Jordan, he tells them, he, he fulfills that pro promise in chapter 4, 14. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And so we see the exaltation of God's servant in the eyes of God's saved people. Moses is referred to, isn't he, at the beginning of Joshua uh, as a servant of God. And now Joshua has taken that mantle in the sight of all the people and God is with him in a special way. It's not the main point of the miracle, but it's a consequence of it. And we see in the exaltation of Joshua a faint echo of the exaltation of Jesus. When we enter the promised land and we embrace Christ and we follow him, he is exalted in our hearts, isn't he? And we see a pattern for all God's leaders here in Joshua. Joshua was humiliated in the book of Numbers, if you remember, when he came back from spying out the, the land in Canaan and went contrary to the cowardly spies who said it was too difficult. And he and Caleb stood firm and said, no, we got to go. And do you remember the people's response to Joshua in Numbers 14? They wanted to stone him. They wanted to stone him. And Joshua was humiliated. And now these people see him exalted. Isn't that what happens to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? It's, it's Philippians 2, isn't it? He came in humiliation. He took on the role of a servant, even though he was God. And he took on flesh and came down. He came down and he humbled himself. How? By becoming obedient. 
obedient to his Father's will, all the way to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name, the name that is above all other names, every other name. It's humiliation before exaltation for our Lord and Saviour. And it's humiliation before exaltation for all God's leaders in the church. And it's humiliation before exaltation for all of us who follow that pattern, as Peter tells us, humbled under the mighty hand of God in order that at the right time you might be exalted. But notice this, the exaltation of Joshua here is connected to blessings for God's people. And the point is this, where rightly appointed leadership is executed well and honored by those under it, then the people experience God's blessing. And when it's not executed well, or the people don't honor their leaders, then they miss out on God's blessing. And so it is vital for you to, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And it is vital that wives, you respect your husbands, as Ephesians 5 says. And it is vital that children, adult and young, honor your father and mother all the days of your life. For God's sake, embrace that pattern. And for your good, embrace that pattern. Then you're going to experience God's blessing, the blessing of peace and harmony and fruitfulness in your relationships in the land. So mark this. The blessings we receive will be related to how well we embrace the execution and reception of spiritual leadership. So we see the exaltation of God's servant. So look at the 12 stones, friends, and see a memorialization of God's saving deeds through the observation of God's saving presence in light of the consecration of God's saved people and with regards to the exaltation of God's servant. And the purpose of the memorialization, observation, consecration, and exaltation can all be summed up in the, in the final verse of, of chapter 4, if you want to look at it there. It's the purpose clause. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. What's the ultimate purpose of it all? I think it's twofold here in the text. First, it is so that the watching world will know God's saving power when you tell them about it. Tell people the gospel, friends. It's their only hope. It's their only hope. Let's plant churches here and let's be involved in planting churches abroad because there are people who need to hear the gospel and be saved and yet they are dying and they're going to hell without doing so. It's so the watching world will know God's saving power when you tell them about it. And second, it's so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. That you might reverence Him in your heart today. That you might love Him with all of your being. It starts here now. Is, it, it, is something happening in your heart today when you look at Jesus lifted up for you on the cross? Love divine. 
sins forgiven? What kind of love are you dealing with? Doesn't it melt you? Doesn't it stir up in your heart desire to be like him, to follow him? And he's saying to you today, are you serious about me? Choose today whom you will serve because you will be serving someone. May the fear of the Lord fall upon us today and may we serve the Lord in following hard after Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So Father, thank you for your word here. Draw our minds to it right now, but even warm our hearts and bend our wills that we might be changed, ever changed. I do pray that the, the repercussions, the reverberations from this word preached, your word to us today, would have echoes through this congregation and down in, into eternity future. That all the peoples would, would know you in your saving grace. You would gather people in from the nations through the proclamation of the gospel and and churches planted, and you would make us a holy people who fear your name. In Jesus' name, amen.